0: Erev Tov, good evening. For those who may be joining us for the first time, welcome, for those of you not, it is so good to see your names and faces back with us again tonight. Baruchim Havayim. Just a hitznatzlut, an apology for what you're seeing behind me. Due to COVID, we've moved out of our regular Bet HaKnesset to an empty unit. It's pretty much like a warehouse. Uh, Pipes coming out of the walls, wires everywhere, but it gives us the room to be able to meet in person in, for tefillot, for classes, for things like that, because it's much bigger than our regular sanctuary. And though actually right now, California is in what they call purple tier. So that means that we're not allowed to meet no matter where, no matter what, unless it's outdoors, we're not allowed to have any kind of tefillah together. So this place is now used again for you. But uh, the setup we have is just temporary and that's why you're seeing what you see. Once uh, Yitzchak gets back to video editing, you'll see that none of this is relevant, but you get to see what other people don't see. So uh, if you're familiar with the matrix, there's the red pill and the blue pill, you get to see all kinds of things that other people don't necessarily get to see. Uh, right now the setup that I have in front of me is a big screen with all of you on it. So if you see me looking not at the camera when I'm talking to you, it's probably because you're in one of the corners of my screen, so don't get offended. I'm actually looking at you. That in front of me is a camera and then an iPhone through which I am zooming with you. So uh, thank you very much for being here tonight. We are getting back into learning together and I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the conversations and, and the discussions and the learning that we have done in the past. Uh, I think we did 10 weeks together, Baruch Hashem, so those months not just meant a lot to me on a personal level, but on an intellectual level, on the Torah level, gave me a lot to think about. Questions, when I have questions that people ask me that I need to go up the, the pay grade. I have to go call hara to get answers for. Those kind of questions that make me stay up at night to look into books, uh, that tells me that the people that I'm learning with are on a certain uh, intellectual capacity, an understanding of Torah and mitzvot in a way that other people don't understand. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity not just to be learning with you, not just at what time it is of night, but also just the fact that you are the people who you are, and you've been pushing me to learn and discuss the things that you have. Uh, we are, I'm in the United States. Many of you are in the United Kingdom. We've discussed this in the past, but for those who are new, there are slight cultural differences between slight between uh, one side of the pond and the other side of the pond. If at any point in time you want to say something or ask something, Don't type it in the chat box. I won't see it. Uh, Don't wave your hand at me. I probably won't know that you're waving at me. I'll think you're waving at somebody behind the screen. If you want to say something, just click that unmute button and say, I would love to hear from you. This is not a lecture. This is a Shi'u toa. We are learning together in a live, organic Bed Hamidash, and I want to hear from you. So if at any point you have something to say, you wish to share, please feel free to do so. At the end of today's Shi'u, I will stick around for as long as anybody wants the questions or just conversations that come up afterwards. uh, Please know that I'm here for that. If anybody has to leave early at any point in time, I know that it's way past uh, many people's bedtimes, and I appreciate you being here. Some of you are in Israel, I see Betsy, all the way in Israel, as I don't even know what time of night it is over there yet, but uh, I think you're two hours later than everyone else, right? Okay, so that means that it's 11.30, that's a brave time to start a shi'u. Yes, but Baruch Hashem, you know, thank you for having me. Baruch Hashem. Okay, with all that being said, today we're going to be kicking off a whole new series. Uh, We've... Tried to incorporate different conversations in the past. And for the first weeks that we studied together, I wanted just to get a feel of who we are, what we're learning. I wanted you to get a feel of some of the variety of information that we might discuss. And there were some requests, real requests in the beginning of this Beda that we should discuss Chachamim, we should discuss perhaps British Chachamim, we should discuss Uh, Issues of halakha, not just uh, other issues, but maybe solid issues. People wanted kashrut, people wanted technology, people wanted to know how to deal with new things versus old things. And I figured that uh, that would be a very hard thing to find in one place. And it happened to be that earlier this year, I was sitting going through a book called Keter Shem Tov. Now, those of you from the United Kingdom, you may be more familiar with the Keter Shem Tov than your American counterparts. Uh, Kedar Shem Tov is an invaluable set of books written by a Sephardic Chacham, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, who was born in Yerushalayim, but later became a big personality in the United Kingdom. It would be unusual for me to have to tell you about him things that you may not know already. But Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin was not just a pioneer in so many areas of Torah, not, a, not just a person who, when you read his writings, you are moved by the things that he says in a way that is very different. He's a unique personality. That's the word that I would uh, give him. You see a hacham that I believe is underappreciated. People think that he collected a book of minhagim. Keter Shem Tov is best known for just recording all kinds of customs that Sephardic Jews have, that Ashkenazi Jews have, that Yemenite Jews have. Why Ashkenazim do some things and Sephardim do other things? Why do the Spanish-Portuguese do things that the Eastern Sephardim don't do and back and forth? People are usually looking at him as just a collector of minhagim. But when you begin to realize how much Torah you need to know, and not just Torah, but how much worldly knowledge you must have, to take on all of the Jewish people and their customs. It tells you a, a tremendous amount about the personality who's sitting in front of you. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is a personality. And in between the lines of his writing, you see that personality. You see the times that he critiques things. You know, there are minhagim, and you read in the notes, uh, Rabbi Shem Tov writes, only somebody who had nightmares could come up with this minhag. Like, what kind of crazy minhag is that? The other minhagim, he blames anti-Semitism on certain minhagim. He says some minhagim are so stupid that only those of, of, uh, of great imagination and weak intellect will believe in such minhagim. And then other minhagim that he believes are the greatest minhagim, that everybody should adopt them. Is a person who has clear, crystal clear, pristine dat. And I, I really enjoyed reading his writings, and I still enjoy reading his writings, but I came across volume number three, because you know, you like to start books in the beginning. Volume number three has an introduction to it that volume one and two just don't have. And I don't know why, you know, Sephardim sometimes print books in interesting ways. You print the introduction to the book in volume three. I have shelot Uchuvot of Yosef Mesas, and the general index is in volume two out of four. So normally you would look for an index in the back of the book. Why they printed it in volume two, I have no idea. But sometimes it's the way that books work. And so I stumbled upon this introduction. I think it was Lel HaSedah, but might correct me if I'm wrong, it was the Pesach time. And I, you know, we had a seda alone, it was just my wife and I and the kids, so it ended pretty early, much earlier than how I usually have a sedah. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm just flipping through a page, I see the Hagdama. And I can't stop reading, and I can't stop reading, and I can't stop reading. And that Hagdama has changed so much of the way that I view things, even in the last few months, that I felt it so worthy to share with you, and all of the shiurim, that I put on the series agenda for the coming weeks are all based, not loosely, but all directly based off of an introduction of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin to his book Keter Shem Tov Volume 3. The topics that he covers are relevant, they're important, they need to be discussed, and I don't want us to fool ourselves into thinking that in just a few weeks we'll be able to completely understand and discuss and get through everything that he mentions but it'll be a stepping stool for us in life to take these ideas and to think about them. I've been thinking about them, how long ago is Pesach? Seven months. I've been thinking about these ideas, I'm not exaggerating if I would tell you, every single day for the last seven months. Things that are powerful, that are important, that are at the root of so much of what is going on in Am today, and I think we have to start somewhere. So wherever we start, we start at the beginning. Normally I print for you a Wikipedia entry on Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, but let me ask you first, how many of you here have heard before today of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin? The email last night doesn't count, so (laughs) before, okay, Baruch Hashem, well I'm so happy to hear that. Um, Can I ask if anyone knows anything about him that you wish to share with us? Any any knowledge, any information? Hugo, I'm looking at you, but not necessarily. I actually don't lectures but I, I don't recall that much I just recall that his name and what you just said pretty much so oh, I'm sorry I can't as much as that is a first for you anyone else know anything about the uh, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin? He spent, he spent a lot of time oh. spent time in Manchester and his, he served as a rabbi here and his son was also a rabbi here in Manchester so there's that Manchester connection for those of us here from Manchester who spent time in Manchester so uh, there's that kind of a and of course, the rabbi, uh, he always mentions him in his classes and his, in his videos, so he's obviously introduced his thoughts to many people as well. So, uh, uh, and, uh, yeah. Rabbi Sharmdolf does spend uh, six or seven years, if I recall correctly, in Manchester, uh, first with the Svaradim in the local community, then he's actually appointed onto the Bedin, the Manchester Bedin, where he serves uh, his time until he's later called away from Manchester. Uh, I didn't know his son actually stayed there. I know I have a book from his son. Uh, I think his son wrote a biography or autobiography, something like that. Um, and I don't know if he's among the living. I'm not sure. I, I don't know to tell you. Maybe Mord can enlighten me. Mistama from the way he speaks about him, not. Uh, anyone else know anything about Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin? We got Manchester. Anywhere else? Okay, so we'll do it together. Let's do it together. It's not the same. There's a book that is out of print and uh, I printed a PDF copy of it through Lulu Printing. So this book is actually a copy of someone else's. If you're familiar with the website hebrewbooks.org, you can find a copy of this book in its entirety. Uh, Hebrew Books is a unique project that has many PDFs of, of really old manuscripts, all kinds of writings that you're hard to find and especially if you it's not just you can't find it because you can't afford it you can't find it because you just can't find it and this book Pirkei Shira was there for a long time I recently got a printed version of it and this comes from the library of Agudat Hasidei Chabad if you're familiar a little bit with Chabad history you may recall that there was a big controversy of the books in Chabad anybody know what I'm talking about? anyone of Chabad persuasion? the, li- the, library, of the, of the, the library that was left in Russia that's the one left in Russia. Then there was one that came over to the United States. Oh, the rabbi and his, and his That's correct. Yeah. So there was. Uh, you want to tell us a story? Pardon? You want to tell us a story? No, yeah, no, please. <laughs> so, uh. Chabad amassed a tremendous amount of books, many of which are still in Russia, more is correct. There's a whole library that's in Russia. And about two years ago, it came back up in the news and there were conversations and negotiations. Russia considered it a national treasure of theirs. It's amazing, when, when the Hasidim were in Russia, I don't think anybody considered them a national treasure of Russia. But now that they left, and they left behind some very important books, so now they're a national treasure, treasure of uh, the Russian people. But there's been conversation about getting those- National treasure. What? There was such a a national treasure that they kicked out the Lubavitcher Rebbe. There you go. So you have uh, have this uh, huge library that's split up and part of it is brought over to Brooklyn and it contains thousands and thousands and thousands of works, many of which are inscribed by the original authors, many to the Lubavitcher rebbees themselves, many to other people. Uh, And there begins to be politics after the passing of the 6th Lubavitcher Rebbe. The 6th Lubavitcher Rebbe was known as Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson. And in Chabad, they call him the Friedricher Rebbe, which just means the previous Rebbe. And the Fried- if, is my Yiddish correct? Is that what Friedricher means? You passed the test. I passed the test, thank you more. You know, my grandfather used to always say, you have to know Yiddish so you can know what people are talking about you behind your back. So Friedricher, at least they say something about it previously Then I'll know. Uh, the Friedricher Rebbe, when he passed away, had, uh, two sons-in-law. So we had two daughters that were married, two sons-in-law. One was uh, Rabbi Gurari, or, yeah, I guess is the proper Hebrew version, but Rabbi Gurari, as well as one, uh, Rabbi Schneerson, who was Rabbi Menachemando Schneerson, later became the seventh Lubavitch rebbe. There were tremendous politics in Chabad Lubavitch at the time over who should be the next rebbe. Now, that's not unusual. For anyone who's familiar with Chabad history, not a not, uh, uh, modified Chabad history. The Chabad history you're familiar with today is the doctored up version of Chabad history. But the undoctored version of Chabad history, there were many Lubavitcher Rebbis, many Chabad Rebbis, more correctly, many Chabad Rebbis that were not Lubavitch. So Lubavitch is a location, uh, Chabad is a theology, and they were st- already as far back as the first Lubavitcher Rebbe. I love Shalom, Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi, already between his son and his student, there were wars who should be the next Rebbe, and pretty much, uh, whereas maybe in the intellectual, I don't, want, actually, I don't want to stick my head. I don't want to stick my head who should have been the next Rebbe, but there is much debate over who should have been the next Rebbe. Not everybody believed it should have been the son. There was a split. Many uh, Chabad denominations broke off. Uh, I believe there were Hasidic Kapust that were also Chabad. Uh, all of them decimated in the Holocaust, and pretty much the only surviving branch of Chabad is the Chabad Lubavitch variety that you may be familiar with. And Chabad Lubavitch makes it their mission to make sure that you don't know about the other Chabads that existed because there's only one Chabad Lubavitch and that's what we have and that's what you know and that's all you need to know. And so the sixth Lubavitch Rebbe was no surprise there was going to be politics over who should be the next Rebbe. Uh, there was internal fighting between the rabbinate and the rabbi and the, whatever else happened. And that's when Chabad, rumors have it, switched their wardrobe. There was a family strimel that didn't get passed on. And between rumors and fact, I'm, I'm not going to uh, put my head there, but there were, everyone talks about a year where the last Lubavitch rabbi, where he, he didn't accept the mantle of leadership. He was waiting, meditating. It was a year of politics, a lot of wars going on uh, inside of the movement at the time. And... Ultimately what happens is that the Rebbe accepts, the last Rebbe accepts the mantle of leadership as the, for the official Lubavitch Rebbe. And that's kind of a, uh, a, a, I don't know, a compromise of sorts or a, a show of goodwill, a gesture of goodwill towards his brother-in-law. You'll notice if you've ever seen a video of the Lubavitch Rebbe that he sat at this long white table whenever he would speak, a long white table. And there's nobody else sitting at that table, only behind him. There are all kinds of big rabbis behind him, but never at his table except all the way at the end of the table is one rabbi that was his brother-in-law. There was a certain level of respect that was given to him that was not given to anybody else. This rabbi Gurari had a son, and I don't know the politics, I only know obviously one side of the story. This Lubavitch Rebbe, uh, he's the Lubavitch Rebbe's grandson or nephew, the last one's nephew, and he decides that the family treasure library belongs to him too. Why is it just belonging to this rabbi? He's a nephew, it's his books also and he seems to have started selling books from the collection of the Chabad Lubavitch library. And this blew up into a huge court case of the Chabad Lubavitch movement suing uh, this nephew for stealing rare manuscripts and selling them uh, to other people for a profit. He claimed these books are a family possession and because of that, they're his to sell. He deserves part of the inheritance and that leads Chabad into court as a movement. Do the books belonging to the Rebbe belong to him or do they belong to his movement? And if they belong to him, then really this nephew deserves part of those books. And if they belong to the movement, then the books belong to the movement, then nobody could steal. Even the Rebbe himself wouldn't be able to sell books from his own library. And this leads to a huge debate in American law. Whose testimony do we accept about what is a Rebbe? What is a Hasid? To whose books do the Hasidic Rebbe's. Uh, uh, who, uh, the Hasidic Rebbe, who owns those books? The movement, that, was a big war in New York. Ultimately, the Chabad Lubavitch movement won on the testimony of the Chabad Rebetzin, and they uh, burst out into song in the courtroom, a famous Lubavitcher song you may hear around. Didan Natzach, we won, we won, it was a famous song they sang, and every time there's a victory in the movement, they still sing that song. The reason for all of that background is because this book is preserved, I have it only thanks to the Chabad Hasidim. If you'll notice at the top of the so the, the Shira book that I sent you, uh, there's a stamp right on top of the page. And that stamp says this belongs to the library of Agudat Hasere Chabad, who allowed for all of their books to be photocopied and uploaded to the internet for free, so everybody could access them around the world, and that's precisely what we're doing right now. You'll see to the left a very beautiful Sephardic handwriting. It's unique because it's different than other handwritings, this is an inscription from Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin to whoever he gave the book to. A certain Rabbi Shalomo, I cannot make out the last name over there, uh, but he gave him this book and there's a fancy signature at the bottom. Many of Chachmei Yerushalayim had this, not just a name, but a design that goes underneath their name and that's what you're seeing there as well. This book Pirkei Shira, is a collection of prayers, a collection of poems, a collection of songs, little bits of random... Uh, Musar, little teachings, nothing major, it's not a major work of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. But in this book there are two precious gems. There are many other ones, but the two that we'll deal with today is one, a biography of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin while he's still alive. So a biography of him written by a colleague whose name is Moshe David Gaon. Has anyone heard of Moshe David Gaon? Any academics in the audience? Anyone heard of the famous Israeli actor or singer, Yoram Gaon, you ever heard of him? Yes. I, yes, okay, I guess he's famous to one person. Uh, so this is Yoram Gaon's father. Yoram Gaon's father was a famous historian, uh, born in Bosnia of the Ottoman Empire, uh, and then later dies in Israel. Uh, but was one of the early pioneers of, of many things that are involved in the Zionist movement. Uh, he's at a certain point a secretary of the chief rabbinate in Israel, and he became one of the greatest recorders of Sephardic history in his generation. There uh, many, many things that we know thanks only to uh, G- Gaon, Dr. Gaon and his uh, writings. So if you'll turn with me to, there's a picture of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. This is a picture from his younger years. And turn with me to where it says page two at the bottom in English. It should say uh, page two at the bottom. So this is on top. This is the life story of Ribi Shem Tov Gagin. Written by Ribi Moshe David Gaon. Who wrote the book, Mechaber Sefer, who authored the work, Yehudei Hamizrach Be'eretz Yisrael. The Eastern Jews or Sephardic Jews in the land of Israel. He also signs He's also the secretary of the Sephardic chief rabbinate in the land of Israel. And he writes the following read together with me. Harav the rabbi, the genius, our teacher, Shem Tov Gagin Shlita. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, may he live and be well. He was born in Jerusalem. He was born in Jerusalem in 1884. 1884, 1884 means that he passed away in 1953, that would make uh, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin 68 years old when he passed away. But at this point, when he's writing this, he's still alive. Moshe he's the son of Harav the son of Rabbi Shalom Moshe Chai Sameach Gagin, who's referred to by his acronym as the Happy Gagin, Sameach, uh, sameach stands for Shalom Moshe Chai Gagin. The Gagin family is a very old Jerusalem family. There are chief rabbis of the Sephardic Chachamim that are from the Gagin family. They're directly connected, if I'm not mistaken, also to the Rashash family, the Sharabi family, who are the rabbis of the Yeshivat HaMekhubalim, the Kabbalist Yeshiva in the old city of Jerusalem. It's a very, very old, there may be, maybe if I'm recalling correctly, also some connection to the Chazan family, Rabbi Avraham Chazan. If not by lineage, then definitely by closeness, He was raised and educated in a school called the Doresh Zion School. Let me get to that in a moment. And afterwards he graduated to study Torah. He went to go study by Rabbi Yaakov Alfia, who was a Kabbalist at the time. So you're talking about an old Yerushalmi family giving birth to a Yerushalmi student who goes to a school, Doresh Tzion. Now when uh, Rabbi Moshe David Gaon mentions to us the Doresh Tzion school, he assumes that you'll know something about the Doresh Tzion school. Has anyone here ever heard of the Doresh Tzion school before? No, probably not. Let me ask you, if I would mention to you Yeshiva University. Have you heard of Yeshiva University before? Could anyone tell me perhaps on one foot what is a major, a major difference, that is the major, a major difference between Yeshiva University and, let me think, uh, Lakewood Yeshiva, BMG? Off of the top of your head? Secular studies. Okay, secular studies. That would probably be the first thing that pops into your head, correct? Uh, very good. Uh, has anyone heard of Yeshivat Poat Yosef before in Jerusalem? Yes. Have you ever heard of the Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem? Off the top of your head, what's a major difference between the Mir Yeshiva and the Poat Yosef Yeshiva? One is Sephardic and one is Ashkenazi. When you drop a name like Doresh Tzion to a person who's familiar with the history of Jerusalem, it means something. Unfortunately, the school is long out of commission and therefore to us, it doesn't mean much. But almost every Sephardic rabbi of that century studied in the Doresh Tzion school. This school was the most famous of the schools in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, Famous for some people and infamous for others. So we're gonna discuss that for just a moment right now because Doestion is an important movement and I wish to share with you a little bit about it. Doestion was opened up in 1866 in Yerushalayim and there was one goal for the school, to create a wholesome Jewish curriculum that included both Judaic studies as well as secular studies. Secular studies included math and mostly language, so understanding of uh, French and Arabic and Hebrew and German for some students Uh, Spanish, uh, certain languages that would be taught. These are the languages of the Middle East at the time, the English, Uh, these were important things for the founders of the school. But the main goal was to unite the Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews of Jerusalem into one school. There should be one school for all of the Jews in Jerusalem. Now for those who've been following any of my shiurim, this is a common thread. You have these, it's a theme that goes on over and over and over again. You have people with these elaborate ideas to unite the Jewish people around one book, around one institution, around one idea, around one rabbi, around one something, and then that always backfires somewhere else. And you're about to hear the tragic backfiring of the Doresh Tzion initiative to unite the Jews in Jerusalem. You have to imagine how many Jews are already in Jerusalem. I think in its prime, this school had at one given time 68 students in it. So that's how many Jews we had in Yerushalayim at the time. That you're talking about a, it's a small school, but those are all the kids in the neighborhood. That's, that's what we have in Yerushalayim. The school was founded in 1866. Like I mentioned to you, they taught uh, language and they taught mathematics. Those were two very important things for them. The main Torah figures in this school, the Torah figures that started the school was one Ashkenazi rabbi by the name of Rabbi Tzachak Prague. He has a last name that I can't pronounce, but they call him Rabbi Prague because he came from a place called Prague. He was an Ashkenazi rabbi, though, interestingly enough, later in his life, he pretty much becomes Sephardic in the way he dresses. He studied Arabic and Ladino in the way he prayed, in the way he observed halacha. but he originally was an Ashkenazi rabbi from Prague. You have another Sephardic rabbi, Rabbi David ben Shimon. Have you heard of Rabbi David ben Shimon before? Maybe have you heard of a son... Rabbi Rafael Aharon ben Shimon. Maybe a book called Nahar Mitzrayim. We'll get there. Don't worry. One day I'm going to throw out names. Of course we know him. It'll happen. Rabbi Rafael Aharon ben Shimon is the chief rabbi in Egypt. He was also born in Yerushalayim to Rabbi David ben Shimon who was the chief rabbi of the Western Sepharadim. Mostly when you say Western about Yerushalayim, you're referring to North Africa. That's what they refer to as Westerners, the Adat HaMa'aravim. There's still a synagogue in the old city of Jerusalem. His synagogue is still intact. I used to pray there on Friday nights. It's called the Tzuf Devash synagogue. Devash Hani, uh, stands for David Ben Shimon. So the, he's always known by his acronym of Hani, the Tzuf Devash the son of two devash, Rabbi Shimon, so the father, Rabbi David ben Shimon, a Sephardic rabbi, and this Ashkenazi Chacham, Rabbi of Prague, they found the school as an initiative. Yes, David Choresh uh, is asking about Morocco. Yes, they're Moroccan rabbis. That's why they're in Yerushalayim, and they're the head of the Moroccan community. This went over great, until people realized that this was going to cause problems. Because whenever you put Sephardim and Ashkenazim in the same place, so how do you teach? Do you teach Sephardic, or do you teach Ashkenazi? In which accent do you teach? In which language do you translate the Chumash to? So maybe I grew up in San Diego, we used to say er Hashem, and Hashem said, El Moshe, to Moshe, le-mo, saying we translate like that into English. Uh, where my wife grew up, and I can't do this, I'm not, I'm married, I didn't get that far into the club. Uh, they say Vayomer Hashem, and they translate into Yiddish, and Moshe, they translate the Yiddish, le-mo, they translate the Yiddish. Uh, so how are you gonna have everybody in the same room? In, in Yemen, they translate it into Arabic, in other communities, into Ladino. What language are we gonna translate Chumash into? And this became a problem and there was a suggestion by a certain Mr. Blumenthal that they should have a school with two rooms, two school rooms, one for Seferanim and one for Ashkenazim, not God forbid to segregate them, but in order to give each one the respective education they need when it comes to to Judaic studies. And his idea was that for Ashkenazim they should study Torah and translate everything into German. And he was insistent that it should not translate into Yiddish. Why not into Yiddish? Yiddish is—it's uh, not like a proper language, really. It's uh, like y- Yiddish was only standardized in the late 19th century, it's it just like a like a Judea-ized german It was like a very like like, like uh, most people I know who speak both languages can attest that it's uh, the Yiddish grammar is pretty much non It's just like <laughs> some kind of weird flow of German grammar. It's very, it's a language in itself. You go, Yiddish professors around the world are cringing at what you just said right now, that it has, doesn't follow rules of, I have, I have students of mine that they used to, their parents used to send them to Yiddish camp in the summer to go study Yiddish grammar and Yiddish sentence structure and they would make jokes in Yiddish, everything was but like old school uh, American Yiddish speakers, uh, he calls Yiddish lashon uh, a messed up language. It's a, it's a incorrect, I once met a Holocaust survivor. Um, His name was Mr. Hollander. I don't know if he's among the living. He came into Israel on Aliyah bet, so on the illegal Aliyah. He he smuggled himself into Israel. He was a passport forger. That was what he did for a living in Yeshiva. He was a very good artist, a passport forger. He forged the passports for the Satmar Rebbe to uh, leave all his Hasidim behind and save himself, you know, the Satmar Rabbi famously told his Hasidim to stay in Europe, everything's going to be okay, and then he ran for the hills uh, to the United States. The way he got out, first he came to Israel, but the way he got out was on a forged passport made by this Mr. Hollander. Uh, Mr. Hollander was so talented at forging passports that he was recruited by what was not yet then the Mossad, but the illegal Aliyah movement, what they called Aliyah Beit. If you've read the book, The Exodus, or, you know, if, uh, any part of this part of history where they're smuggling people onto the shores of Palestine at the time. Uh, he was very involved in forging the papers for many of the officials that came over. Uh, Mr. Hollander, once the state of Israel started, uh, joined officially the Mossad. And I remember speaking to him about a few things. And they told me, listen, everything we did for the Mossad before 1948, I could talk about. Everything that happens after 1948, you're never going to hear an answer from me. So uh, every, every time you'd ask him a question, he would just smile at you. That was a smile. Uh, so It was at the time, if you remember, that there was an assassination of terrorists. I think it was in Dubai. Uh, 12 bedrooms and someone had forged uh, passports from the United Kingdom. You remember what I'm talking about? And they assassinated these terrorists and then everyone blamed it on Israel. Israel claimed they had no idea what everyone's talking about. When they asked Mr. Hollander, he just smiled at me. That's all he did. Uh, but uh, so an answer more than I can't tell you, but he was insistent, so I, when I spoke to him, telling Mr. Hollander, I asked Mr. Hollander if he speaks Yiddish. He said, of course I speak Yiddish. I said, so do you speak Yiddish? He says, "Jonathan, I speak a good German, a good Hebrew, and a good English. Why would you want me to speak a bad Hebrew and a bad German and a bad English? Why would I ever speak Yiddish? That was his, I, mean, I know how to speak it, but I know how to speak other languages proper. And this Mr. Blumenthal suggests that the Ashkenazi children should be taught in German. And the German should be what he calls Zachvenaki, very sophisticated and clear, meaning proper German. And what about the Sephardim? So the Sephardim, they should speak either Arabic or Spanish, zakh it should be very clear and very precise, and he says they should stay away from Ladino, which now it's the chance for the Ladino speakers or or those of Ladino heritage to be offended that that's also considered the Sephardic so we, no no monopoly on the fence over here but this was the dream the dream didn't work out so well Uh, the reason because there were extremists in Jerusalem like there are always extremists in Jerusalem who did not see at all that it was a proper idea for Sephardim and Ashkenazim to study together they also were livid at the fact that this yeshiva would incorporate into it secular studies. This was, it's not a new war, it's an old war. And they decided to go all out and attack this yeshiva. What did they do? In the middle of the night, Yerushalayim's Hevra Kadisha, the burial society, they take a coffin and they leave it on the doorstep of Rabbi Tchak Prague. So when he wakes up in the morning, he finds a coffin in front of his door. And it seems like in whatever uh, ultra orthodox European politics were in Israel at the time, that was you're now excommunicated from the Jewish community. If so you have a coffin by your front door, you're out. Imagine uh, images of burning crosses on people's lawns of like that happened in this country or other such. It was a sign. Like obviously I always used to blow a shofar and you heard a shofar, a person was excommunicated from Mishiva. Uh, so this was, they, they left a coffin on his doorstep. And there's a newspaper clipping that I have from there that says, and that night, the little mice crawled out of their holes. And even the bats, they came and they saw light. And they were wandering around the city. And they came and they blew Shofarot. And they went and they stood under the window of Rav Orebach. Rav Orebach is Rabbi Meir Orebach, he was the chief rabbi of the Ashkenazim in Yerushalayim at the time. And they started blowing long Tikiot blasts. What? Is he related to I'm almost positive it's the same family. Zalman Orebach from a very old Yerushalayim family. Like Rav Eliashev and Lava also a very old Yerushalmi family. Um, and they started blowing the shofar and cursing at him and screaming all kinds of insults. So You can imagine, it's not so far away to imagine. For those of you who've been to Yerushalayim, uh, is Raphael Gura with us today? When I took Raphael for the first time, yeah, Raphael's here. Raphael, do you remember what happened? We landed in Yerushalayim for the first time. I flew with him and his daughter together to Yerushalayim. And we were staying the night at my in-law's house in Mea Harim. And it's a long flight. We went through Amsterdam and we finally made it to Israel. And it's late, and so we rented a car and we drive towards my in law's house. And all of a sudden, the street is closed. Rafael, do you remember why the street was closed? Uh, I remember the street was closed. I don't recall why. We had dumpsters being burned in the middle of the street. And all a whole bunch of people screaming, Give up! Give us! So I live in 30 at night. Give up! Screaming they're throwing things, burning things but it's not, it's not a, another, they're burning their own neighborhood down. And so now we're stuck because it's mash, you can't reverse. There's nowhere to go. You can't make a U-turn. At the time I was with a, a okay, it well, doesn't make a difference. I ended up doing this. We drove on the sidewalk. And I remember Raphael's daughter being very shaken up. Like this is Israel. They burn dumpsters in the middle of the streets. Rabbis, because they all look like rabbis, they're all burning dumpsters in the middle of the streets and we have to drive on the sidewalk. Rafael is a former border patrol agent. He never in his life broke the law until he drove on the sidewalk with me in Yerushalayim. Uh, and this is a certain thing that happened. They made a half-ganah outside of uh, Rabbi Orbach's house. And the two of these thugs, the brothers that were leading this protest, they went to the school, the Dorosh Zion school. And they started beating up the students in the school and their teachers also. So they came in and they started beating up these uh, children and their teachers. If that sounds surprising to you, I mean, don't think like Afghanistan. That happens too. But, but in Yerushalayim, when I was in Yerushalayim, there was a Chacham. He passed away since then. His name was Rabbi Yaakov Yosef. Do you, have you heard of Rabbi Yaakov Yosef? He was the son of Rabbi Vali Yosef. Rabbi him. He passed away. Uh, ties were not always so great between him and his father because Rabbi Yaakov Yosef inherited the one gene that the rest of his family did not seem to inherit. And that is, he was a contrarian, just like his father. Everything that the establishment believed, he believed the exact opposite. And that meant that even if his father believed something to be correct, the son, Rabbi Yaakov, had no problem uh, attacking his father and saying he's incorrect, he's wrong. And he fought with him about politics and fought with him about religion. Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, at a certain point, was involved in a lawsuit against the Slonomer Chasidim. Rabbi, do you remember what happened over there? Is that the story in Emanuel? Exactly. You remember what happened? Yeah, of course. Same thing that happens all the time. They did let the Sephardic girls So in Emanuel is a city in Israel, there was a Bet Yaakov, a girl's school, ultra-Orthodox girl's school. I was living in Ushahim. I, I don't know what year this was, maybe 2010, 11, 12, somewhere in that time period. And uh, they had built a wall, Mamash, a wall down the middle of the school, a fence down the middle of the playground. Sephardic girls on one side, Ashkenazi girls on the other side, they even put, you know when you have construction fence, you could put those like plastic pieces in between so you don't see from one side of the fence to the other side of the fence. They didn't even want them to see each other. This became a major lawsuit in Israel. Uh, The government threatened to close the school. So what the parents did of the of the Hasidic girls, they they built a a makeshift school in the parking lot. They put up a tent and they were all learning in the tent. They said they will never go back to a school uh, with Sephardic girls inside of that school. And this became the Million Man March, so ultimately there was a rally in Yerushalayim. The ultra-Orthodox managed to spin this story as a matter of freedom of religion, that we decided that according to our religion, it doesn't make sense, has nothing to do with racism, This has nothing to do with religious standards, and these girls don't fit the religious standards of our school, and the secular state of Israel has no right to interfere with our school. And uh, they, they remember it was a riot. And many Sephardim also on that. Day. I remember when I was in Israel, they, they demanded every yeshiva would send their, their students to represent this. People talk about like, the most inspirational day in modern yeshiva history. All the yeshivot got together, all the seminaries got together to protest the evils of the state of Israel. The only evil here were the people protesting. Nobody else was evil in the story. Uh, the state of Israel was doing what it needed to be done and it was a righteous thing that the state of Israel had done. Uh, ultimately... It was a Motzei Shabbat, and Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, who was the most vocal opponent of this protest, and he finds himself teaching a class in his Bet midrash to his students on Saturday night, and these thugs, I don't want to tell you which Hasidut they came from, they show up in the Bet midrash and they started beating up Rabbi Yaakov Yosef. So he's a like, oh shiva, big hacham in that community, throwing chairs at him, tables at him, Because, you know, violence is the answer, of course, when you can't deal with it in any other way, so violence becomes the right way to do things. Here you're dealing with violence also. You go to school, and you beat up the children in the school. You want to beat up the teachers. I mean, that's violence, but fine, they're the teachers. Why would you beat up children? What would have to go wrong for you to go beat up a child? the It's the sickest of the sick that a person could do. Prag told the students, "Fight back! It's okay; they're adults, but you can beat them up too." even u yad, and everybody took rocks and they took sticks. adam, and they chased away these antagonists, and the children were saved from these people. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin was educated in the Dorish Zion School. This school ultimately loses support from the Ashkenazi establishment. It becomes a school that uh, only Sephardim go to and a small group of Ashkenazim. Uh, there were seven, ultimately seven classrooms, uh, six of which taught in Ladino, one which taught in Arabic, mostly for North African Jews who were coming to Israel. You have this school last until the turn of uh, really fairly recently, but it became an Israeli public school and then it just fell out of interest. Nobody cared to. Uh, continue the yeshiva or its mission. Today it's rented out by a Haredi yeshiva that is there, some anonymous yeshiva that uses the building. Uh, but this is the tragic story of the Doresh Zion institution, which was intended to unite all the children of Yerushalayim into one school so they could possibly have a harmonious future together. Part of me feels that the reason why Rabbi Shemtov Gagin fights so hard in his lifetime to unite Sephardim and Ashkenazim, maybe, and I don't have any proof to this, but maybe because of his birth and his home and his upbringing, being born into the politics of Yerushalayim, between the wars of Ashkenazim and Sephardim there, he felt as much as it was important for people to maintain their own traditions and their customs and their languages, but it was very important to even more important than that was to unite the Jewish people together. And this becomes a big mission of his. And he's very popular with his message throughout it. This is a, a very popular message in all of his writings. And ultimately this makes sense why a person like him would sit on Bataiddin with Ashkenazim, would sit on Batedin with Sephardim, would be involved in every facet of Jewish life, because he truly believed that the Jewish people should all be together as one. I know it's a novel concept, but for him it wasn't a it wasn't a khidush, that's how the world should be. And Uh, He would be very proud to see all the people in the world who today perhaps these divisions don't bother them anymore. Marry each other and pray with each other and learn Torah with each other and share ideas together. But that was a world that Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, at least in his upbringing, did not merit to see uh, and, and tried his life, his whole life, to make that into an example. Let me read to you a little more. If you have anything you want to bring up, I'm happy to take questions, so please. Beotobin Chavgimen, when he was 23 years old, Nismach al Ho'alideh Rav Chaim Berlin. He was ordained as a rabbi by none other than Rabbi Chaim Berlin. Please, someone tell me you've heard of Rav Chaim Berlin. Yes, okay. So he has a. Not Rav Chaim. I don't think this is Rav Chaim Berlin. Rav Chaim Berlin is the uh, brother. Am I correct? The brother of. Maybe this. The brother or the son of the Nizif? I don't remember. He has a yeshiva in New York. There's a famous Yeshivad behind Berlin in New York. The sun, yes, sun. the sun. Okay, the sun. Thank you very much. This is legend, not brisk. No, not brisk. Velazin, correct. Valajan. Uh, he was ordained by him as a rabbi. I'm not sure if that happened in Europe or that happened in, uh, already in uh, New York. I have no idea. Bishna Tafreish Ein in the year 1911 until 1919, he becomes a, a member of the Betadin in Kahir, in Egypt. And he was also a member of the Sephardic Din in Kahir as well as in the Ashkenazi Betadin. What are Ashkenazim doing in Egypt? Why do Jews travel the world aside from exile? There's business. business. Well, a colony of France. Correct? Okay. They're a colony of many people. And many of those nations ended up on trade routes. I, I'm, I'm being very careful who I call colonies now and what's a colony of who and what, how that works out. But uh, we are we're dealing with a community in in Egypt that has both Sephardim and Ashkenazim, very famous Ashkenazi rabbis of Egypt. I just recently read a letter, I think his name was Rabbi Aharon Mendel HaKohen, he was the Ashkenazi chief rabbi in Egypt. A tremendous Tamin Chacham, is quoted so warmly by his Sephardic counterparts. So Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin becomes a Dayan both in the Sephardic Bedin as well as the Ashkenazi Bedin. He's offered by the great Chacham Rabbi Chaim Nachum to be the chief rabbi of Baghdad. Chacham Bashi is not a light title. Chacham Bashi is, is like the, the supreme ruler of the Safaradim in Iraq. And he's offered this position. It's a tremendous position. Many, many historians have connected the various positions of Chacham Bashi, both in the Turkish Empire as well as in Iraq, to the actual position of Rabbi Udanasi, the prince of the Jewish people. They continue this as a national, a natural successor of the Negidut, which was in Egypt. Uh, It's a tremendous position, which for whatever reason we don't know. We don't know why he turned down the position. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin could have put a footnote here and told us why he turned down the position, but instead he chose not to, so I have no idea why he turned down the position. By the way, we have many rabbis who turn down big positions. Uh, Last time we studied together, I believe I mentioned to you that Rabbi Yosef Masas, turned down the position of chief rabbi of Israel. I don't remember why he turned it down. He later becomes chief rabbi of Haifa. He turns it down because he feels that he cannot replace Rav Uziel. Rav Uziel is too big of a personality to be replaced and he won't do it. Uh, Rav Soloveitchik, the famous uh, Rav Soloveitchik uh, from Yeshiva University, he was offered a candidacy of the chief rabbi of Israel, which he turned down. we you know which reason he turned it down for? Correct. Rav Soloveitchik said that his primary position was a teacher of Torah. That's what he does. And when he inquired as to the schedule of the chief rabbi and how much the chief rabbi has to wave at people and greet people and put out official letters and meet with dignitaries, he said, this job is better suited for somebody else. I'm not a politician. I'm a rabbi. And as a rabbi, I'm a teacher. And if I don't have the hours that I need every day to teach Torah, then there's no use in uh, being a Rosh yeshiva." Or being a chief rabbi, or being anything else, I need to just be who I am, and that is a teacher. I'm primarily a moreh. That's what he writes about himself. So, for whatever reason, Rabbi Shamtov Gagin turns this down. Bereshi Tavreshpei in 1919 until 26. Nitkabel Rav Lakilat Asfaradim in So, that's when he spends in Manchester, what did I tell you. 1919 to 1926. So, seven years when he was there, he created a tremendous revolution in the educational methods. Uh, Mart, I have no idea what Manchester looks like right now. We'll come check it out one day. Uh, but he created a revolution in the educational system, at least among the Sfaradim in Manchester. From the smiles that I'm seeing, I'm not sure that the educational system has survived until today. Who natan shiorim Rabbanit, I was warned that I have to be more politically correct when I speak in the United Kingdom. But this is our not, not I'm not speaking for any organization over there. Uh, he himself didn't suffice just being the rabbi. He gave the classes on Talmud. He taught Shulchan Aruch other disciplines. And while he was doing that, so being the rabbi of the Svaradim, being a teacher in the school, he also took upon himself in 1920, so about a year later after he came to Manchester, the position of a Dayan in Ashkenazi, Beit as well. Uh, who here is from Manchester? I know more is from Manchester. Anyone else? The Horwiches. Are you guys are from Manchester? Hugo, Is there a still, are there still two... Are there still two Bataidin in Manchester? Oh, interesting. so there's, there's no Sephardic Bedin in Manchester anymore? Is there a Sephardic representation in the Manchester Bedin? Uh, no. No, 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 no. Interesting, okay. So this is different, let's say, than London, where, where that's uh, a given. Okay. Well, got the same It's got the? London, London has the Sephardic Bedin. Right? Yeah, right, exactly. So there are two, at least two. And I know of more, but that's correct. So Miketz Shana, about a year later, that's 1920, Huzman in London, Sephardim. He to be offered the position of rabbi of the Sephardim in London. az man higana ruchani And from then he remained, meaning that's current when he's writing this, he remains the spiritual leader both of London and Manchester Sephardic communities. How far is London and Manchester from each other? How far are they? three-hour drive. Is it possible to have a connection to both places? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like, dead, it would have been harder because there was no quick trains or anything. Transportation, okay, interesting. So I'm assuming that his primary place of residence was in London, but he ends up uh, still maintaining communication with whoever has replaced him in Manchester, and that may very well be his son. I don't know the timeline of when that took place. Bishanhaiter pat towards the end of 1927 it bakash lakabel elavatam israeli rosh shivat ohel moshav Yudit, she hasem sar moshe motefyuri ve rayato Asher by Ramsgate so he's asked to take on the position of the ohel moshav judit i believe it's called the Montefiori college in Ramsgate whoo shamon al ha yom and he's the head of that school until today not anymore, but until the point of this writing. in 1934, Nifhab Ma'amar Melech uh, Lisgan yosef Rosh B'Anglia. He's chosen by the royal government in 1934 to uh, be the assistant head of, I, don't, I found the name in English, but I don't actually know what it's called, the uh, V'ad Rabbanim of England. There's an official name, though. You must know better than me. no no no, Jews college was no this is a a bigger organization of rabbis I will get you the name because I just wrote it down in my notes that I did not bring with me today if you look up in the Wikipedia article about him they mention what happened to him in 1934 you'll tell me what it says on page 8 and from a very young age, he started writing, he started publishing in the publication, he started writing about all kinds of uh, religious topics of the time, he published a famous article about etrog, an etrog that comes from Orlah and Rabbi uh, Avraham Yitzchak HaKuen Kuk, who was the chief rabbi of Israel at the time, approved his p'sak and signed off on it as well. Someone read to me what Morit wrote, Vice President of the Rabbinical Commission for the... I can't see the rest. Licensing of the Shachatim in Great Britain. Thank you. Odin P'sumein he wrote many other, many other newspapers, The Jewish Chronicle, The Jewish Guardian, The Jewish World, The Jewish Tribune, The, the Israel Messenger, and so on and so forth. He published in many places. And then he left behind a tremendous wealth of books. These books that he writes, uh, Keter Shem Tov, which at this point is only two Chalakim. But today it's already, if I'm not mistaken, seven volumes or eight volumes. I have, uh, they're printed maybe in four volumes or five volumes, but it's uh, more than two. And he says that's, so volume one, all of these books are about the different minhagim between Ashkenazim and Sephardim and the Eastern Sephardim and the Western Sephardim. Uh, the second book he prints are comments on the Midrash Rabbah and and that is still in manuscript form, so I have never seen it printed, and I don't believe it was ever printed. The next book he wrote was, Shelot V'tshuvot, Lashonim BeLondon London V'Kilat Chutzot, uh, Questions and Answers in Halakha that he wrote to his community in London, as well as to other people who wrote to him from around the world, kitvayat that's Oktav that's also in manuscript form, I don't believe that has ever been printed. Biur chamishachum he wrote a commentary in the five books of the Torah, so on the whole Chumash, Ktaviad, Yad, that also has never been printed. Hey, HaTalmid Shoeil V'Arab Meshiv, Questions and Answers Between a Rabbi and a Student. So a uh, type of book that was written in a format of a conversation between him and his students, Ktaviyad, that book was also never printed. Durushim Nifirua Chazman, Three, or maybe, I don't know if it's a Nun or a Gimel, but he wrote essays about the issues of the time, pressing issues of his generation. Ktaviyad, those have never been printed either. Zain, biur, the Sever Piske Rikanti or Rikanati. He wrote a commentary on this work as well. It's never been printed. Girsad Yankuta, Chidushim Shonot. He wrote a book called Girsad Yankuta, which is all his Chidushim on different pieces of the Talmud that has never been printed. Sever Pirke Shira, the book that you have in front of you right now. Hakolel Kodel Bekirbot Filot, veShirim the Simcha, the Evel, Musar, which includes songs and poems for happy and sad occasions as well as different pearls of wisdom. Uh, this was printed in Lita. So I have no idea why he chose to print his book in Lithuania as opposed to printing it in the United Kingdom. It could be. It could be that this is before the war. So it could be that there were printing presses that were active, that knew how to print in Hebrew. I don't know the reason for why he chose to go there. But even though he's in the United Kingdom, he still prints his books in Lithuania. And last but not least, uh, His chronicles of his journeys through Spain and France. There's one more book that's not on this list. I have a copy of it. It's impossible to get your hands on, even in a PDF form to the best of my knowledge. And that is his uh, discovery about the Jews of Cochin. Uh, it's a very short book that contains pictures. The pictures part, you're unable to, I have it, but it's a very old copy. Uh, but the one, the text, at least what he wrote about that community, you can find in one of the volumes of Keter Shem Tov. They've printed inside of it, uh, the little pamphlet that he wrote about the Jews of Cochin. Aside from that, and the Keter Shem Tov, and this book of Pirkei Shirah, the vast majority of the life works of Rabi Shem Tov Gagin have never been printed. And even those that have been printed are very difficult to find. I don't know what the situation is today, but for years I was looking for a Keter Shem Tov. I got my own copy only as recently as a year ago. Lelinaz, um, when one I in Israel? I saw you then, we were, you were in my shiul. How long ago was that? Two copies in Bevis Mark's synagogue by the upstairs kiddish table if anyone's in London and wants to read it. Oh, Chave, don't pull Don't pull a nephew of the Lubavitch Arabian and steal the books and sell them. Just go look at them if you need to learn from them. Uh, so a year ago I got my own set and it was very hard to get my hands on that set and I paid a lot of money to get that set uh, and I think Mord you said you went right afterwards to the bookstore to look for this and uh, it was already gone. But uh, this, this uh, set was printed with a disclaimer. And this disclaimer is precisely what makes me know that we're on the right trail of the right kind of Chacham uh, to be able to properly understand the life of this person. There's a disclaimer. So it's the book, there's the new edition, and it's not in your PDF. So I sent you the first 30 pages of the, of the volume that we'll be studying. But there's one page that was added, uh, added, added, added in 1999 by whoever printed the book again. They made a little box. At the bottom of the page. And this box is so full of chutzpah that it tells you that we're living in a generation of redemption. Because our rabbis tell us de that in the, the, the footsteps of the Mashiach uh, chutzpah will come out throughout the world. People will become audacious. And who could print such a book and write such audacious things? They write here, notice, warning. It should be known to all who read or look inside of this book. Sharav the author of Blessed Memory, Palat Kul Muso, Kama Varim Tmuhim. His quill spat out. That's a you don't want to say he wrote bad things. So what do you say? It spilled out of his quill like the ink spilled, and this is what. So this whoever wrote this must believe in evolution, a, a big bang of sorts. It was a, the ink spilled, and then it, the book wrote itself. So what happens here? Kama V'Chamad Tmuhim the author of this book, his quill spat out some highly unusual things. And therefore the only reason why this book should be printed, the only uh, reason for existence of this book, why we will print it, is because he records a number of minhagim, about a number of communities which have no other source in any other book aside from this one. And this is the only work which discusses those customs, and because of that, we've agreed to reprint the book a second time, but you should be warned that this book contains very many things that you should be wary of, and why you would spend money to print a book of a chacham and then warn everybody. You know how many books you should have warnings in front of? Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is not that book. Half of the books that are printed by the Orthodox Jewish establishment today, they should put a warning on the front, like a package of cigarettes, you know, may lead to death and loss of life and suffering, you know, whatever else may, but for, for this, for this book, but I'm sure it's because of the things that he's going to write that really triggered the establishment, that bothered them so much that in such a short period of time, when did I tell you he passed away? Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin? He passed away In 1953, so from 1953 until today, 70 years, the Jewish community has uh, deteriorated so rapidly that somebody who was once so unanimously approved of, both by Sephardim and Ashkenazim, who sat on both Batei Din in every country he went to, in Egypt, in, in the United Kingdom, somehow today his teachings are too controversial to be printed without a warning label on them, or maybe printed at all. And the mitzvah I'm urging all of you here, who are here, who have access, and I don't know who, who is a descendant of the Gagin dynasty, but I can tell you that I myself would be interested in going door-to-door, I don't have a lot of money, but to go door-to-door, to collect money, to print the writings of Bisham Tov Gagin. If somebody would find me these 10 manuscripts that were missing, a sane commentary on the Chumash, novel insights on how to deal with problems of the generation, why should these books fall apart and deteriorate in some private place, when the whole world can access those treasures. It's a job. And I think that that burden falls mostly on those who live close enough to be able to find out and do some investigation. Look into it. Mitzvah Rabbi Yichashev. It's a tremendous mitzvah. The Pelioetz, before he passes away, urges his children to do him a favor and to print his works. And not just to print his works, because there are a lot of people whose books are printed that nobody reads. But to print his books and to study them. To make sure that his books don't die with him. When he passed away, so one of the major Jewish printing houses put out a biography about him. and in The biography was okay. But in the back of the book, there was a very moving poem. Somebody had written a poem as if they were the books of Rabbi, Rabbi Yosef to him. So they were all, like the books on the bookshelf, are writing a poem to Rabbi, Rabbi Yosef. And they were crying. And they were saying to Rabbi for so many years, nobody knew about us until you brought us into your library and you welcomed us into your life and you quoted from us and you taught us and you mentioned us to other people and now that you have left the world we fear that our fate will be that we'll return back to the bookcases and nobody will know our names and nobody will look inside of our pages and we'll fall by the wayside like every other valuable piece of Jewish history that the people just neglect to to remember in their apathy it's not malicious always but in our apathy towards our chachamim we forget who they were. We forget that we're only here because they put their lives on the line for us. This apathy is perhaps one of the worst killers of the legacy of the Jewish people. The ideas that we're going to introduce, and I realize today, that there's no way in the world I'm gonna cover uh, Rabbanit Flores I mean, I thought I would do half a class on Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, half a class on her. The truth is that she deserves uh, three and a half classes or a hundred and a half classes. But uh, half a class wasn't enough justice for her. Uh, but definitely, the end of my shiur is not the right place to put Rabbanit Flores Gagin. So, like I warned in my email, there may be multiple sessions for each one of the topics on our syllabus in Beis Next week, I hope to discuss the life of Rabbanit Flores Assun and the connection between Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. And, and Rabbanit Sassoon, as well as the connection of the Benish Chai and Rabbanit Sassoon, and the connection of Rabbi Tchach Nisim, the Sephardic Chief Rabbi of Israel, and Rabbi uh, Flora Sasun, the connection of Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler, who was uh, also a rabbi for a period in the United Kingdom, and then finds himself in Eretz Israel, his connection to Rabbanit Flora Sasun. And I can list the names and names and names of Chachamim who corresponded with Rabbanit Flora Sassoon as an inspiration for what Jewish leadership can look like, and we will get there in Hashem next week. But for today, for today, I think that the purpose of this series is, has many facets to it, and many elements to it, but if I could summarize. First and foremost is to bring back to life names, ideas, concepts, personalities of people that the Jewish people, I don't want to believe it's malicious, but in their apathy towards these people, have forgotten about them. And we have to do what we can to pre- not just preserve, but to breathe life back into those books, to breathe life back into those personalities. When I look at Amish that are running away, running away from Judaism in every way that they possibly can run, anywhere aside from to Judaism, and you say maybe they're running away not because of Hashem, maybe not because of Torah Hashem, but maybe they're running away because the type of Judaism that we're offering them doesn't work for them. And the type of Judaism that worked for them, we did a really good job in decimating We buried it so far underground that when we begin to talk about it, we begin to talk about a time where things worked out between Sefaradim and Ashkenazim, where the world was a good place, where Chachamim communicated with each other, where women became Torah scholars, that's next week's you. There was a world where those things were not revolutionary. They were just normal, normal Jews doing normal Jewish things. But today those are in the realm of controversy. And unless we breathe life back into those personalities, those people, those books, I fear that what our children will inherit from us in this world will be an even more broken Judaism than we have right now. You are, we are the solution to fixing that. The second, the second is the ideas that are being brought up, concrete ideas for how to help solve Jewish problems, understanding those problems, providing concrete solutions, not just talking and dreaming and thinking, exploring those ideas, to learn from these personalities, a way of life that is vibrant, and ultimately, not just exposure for the past, not just enrichment for the present, but to give hope for a future. When I look around this Ben and I see everybody here, and I know almost every one of you personally, and for those that I don't know as personally, old chazan no we will get to know each other personally. When I look at all of you and I say, where is Amisal headed? When I read the news and I get depressed about the Jewish people. When I see Chachamim fighting each other right and left about such trivial things. When I see big books of halakha being put out on what blessing do you recite over Bamba? And then nobody else being able to discuss anything more relevant to the Jewish people than that. When I get depressed about Amisal, I look at all the people that come to study Torah with myself and the Rabbanit and it gives me chizuk, me. So maybe I'm just selfish. But it gives me tremendous uh, chizuk to know that there is not just hope but there are concrete efforts that are being put towards fixing the Jewish people, giving a brighter future to the Jewish people of all types, of all walks, of all denominations, of all lives. And B'zalad Hashem, I hope that uh, God willing we'll do this together and the coming classes that we'll learn together. And every single one of them is a stepping stool towards a bigger vision, a bigger goal that God willing we'll discuss and explore together. Next week, B'zalad Hashem, uh, I put a Wikipedia link about Rabbanit Flora, Farcha Sasson. Look into her. If you've never heard of her, then now is your chance to learn about her so that next week when I ask you, has anyone heard of Rabbi Flores this You'll say, yeah, of course, we heard about it. Everybody will will, uh, know who she was. Uh, But not just to know about her, but to to internalize who this personality was, who she was, what she was, and the fact that it was a Jewish community of the United Kingdom that gave birth to a Talmida Chema. Maybe not literally gave birth, she was born somewhere else, but who nurtured and allowed for a Talmida Chema to not just exist, but to thrive the way that she thrived only in a place in which Jews were able to think outside of the boxes that other Jews in different countries had created. And for me, when I think of personalities that we need to get to know, uh, like some of you suggested a few months ago, let's look home first. Let's look at our people first. Let's look at our, am I saying our? Rabbanit, do you want to move? Our United Kingdom first. Let's find those personalities that had vision for the future. And together we will uncover all of this. So God willing, next week's Sheol was dedicated entirely to Rabbanit Flores HaSul.